Memorial Day is tomorrow. It's a day where we honor those who are servicemen and servicewomen who have fallen in battle in one way or another. Got me thinking about D-Day, which happened almost 75 years ago. It was June 6th, 1944. You might remember that we stormed the beaches of Normandy in five different areas. The U.S. had two, and in particular, the strongest and most fierce of the battle happened at Omaha. Uh, This is the depiction that you see in movies like Saving Private Ryan. You might have seen images like this where you had guys who were uh, making their way up to the beaches of Normandy and not realizing just how fierce the battle was concentrated in that particular spot. And so these men were preparing not only to fight for the sake of their nation, but also in many cases to die. Uh, There was uh, estimated 425,000 Allied and German troops who were killed during the Battle of Normandy. It wasn't just the uh, storming the beaches. It was also inclusive of the entire battle itself. People who were in charge of the various troops would say things like, I am prepared to lose the whole group. Uh, I mean, think about the kind of responsibility on your conscience to lead several men, dozens of men, into battle knowing full well that they will probably all die. Another man said, leading another troop, said, they're murdering us here, talking about the beaches of Normandy, specifically Omaha. He said, let's move inland and get murdered. At least let's take some land if we're going to die. Let's die by advancing the cause of the Allied troops. General Dwight D. Eisenhower was a supreme Allied commander. You might remember that. And here's the quote that he gave them as they were preparing to leave. He said, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this, the year of 1944, the tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking." The men and women who comprised the Allied forces fought bravely, and they fought in ways where they knew that there was nothing less than death on the line for them. Nothing in their minds would convince them to give up the fight. They were determined to fight for something that they knew was right, just, and good for all of humanity. How silly it would be for one of them to bring a down comforter in their luggage, or to bring a space heater in case it got cold. Or for him to say, hey, can we pack an air conditioner so that we can make sure that our airplane is well-cooled? How foolish it would be for them to bring the modern conveniences in a place where fierceness and battle readiness was the requirement. In today's text, Peter's concern for us is that we realize this. The Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. And much like the men and women who comprised the Allied forces, went into the battle ready to die for the great cause that they were serving, you and I have to be just as prepared to fight the battle of the Christian faith. We need to arm ourselves to be ready for our spiritual battle. Otherwise, we'll be severely underprepared for the ferocity of our enemy. One man spoke about the ferocity of the, of the, of the German forces when he reached the beaches, the beaches of Normandy, and he said it was traumatic, terrifying, and brutally difficult for me to hear the, vo- the voices of men whose bodies have been dismembered and sprayed all over the beaches to cry out for their mama and to reach out their hand to have me help them. 
He said, I left a scar that's never been healed. We're not going to see bodies flayed on the ground. But I can tell you this, the battle that you and I are in is actually much more important and far more impactful than what D-Day was for us. The battle that we're in is far more consequential than any war that has ever ravaged our states, our nation, and our world. The war that we're in is a battle not just for the lives and the freedoms of their country, but rather for the people, the souls that sit in the seats next to you and the souls that are outside this building here. The battle that we're in is a battle of literal eternal life and eternal death. And Peter's concern for us today is that we be ready for this, that we take our cues from men and women like this who fought bravely and who fought with a gritty type of ferocity, that that should characterize the church today. Peter wants you to realize that our cause is the cause of Christ, and we need to be prepared to suffer for his cause, training ourselves to live with the end in mind. With that introduction, let's move our way to 1 Peter chapter 4, looking at at all uh, the first 11 verses. And in his first two verses, he's going to make it abundantly clear the way that we need to think about our Christian life. This should, if you hear it rightly, should encourage you to man or woman up, to feel a certain sense of righteous obligation to say, I can't think about my life as simply floating along through the the ins and outs, the, the, the days and the nights. This is a life that is meant to be lived with intensity, with discipline, with focusness, and even a few surprising factors that you wouldn't even think about. If you're thinking about a battle, as I think Peter has in mind here, he throws in elements that you would never guess that he would want to have in a battle. Let's begin looking at our text, starting at verse 1. He says this, "'Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking.'" For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The verses that he's referring to up here is 2 Peter 3.18. He talks about Jesus suffering on our behalf. So he says, because Jesus suffered on our behalf, you need to do this. And this is where it gets interesting. Arm yourselves. That imperative in the text is the same kind of word that would be used for someone like a soldier putting on his, 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 his military garb. It's a, it's a soldier who's putting on his armor. He's saying, arm yourselves. Now think about the first century, uh, first century soldier putting on his, his military protection. He's not going to do it haphazardly. He's not going to just throw it on and just hope things work well. He's going to be meticulous and focused about the way that he assembles his armor. You might be thinking of Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says that we're to put on the full armor of God. And in this text, Peter's saying, put on the armor of what? There's a certain type of armor that the Christian needs to wear in addition to the, to the, the spiritual armor that's given in Ephesians 6. Here's the armor, the kind of armor that you need to characterize your life by, the same way of thinking. This armor is a certain mentality. This armor is carrying with yourself an intense and focused thought. The way of the the thinking is, and he refers back to this, the suffering of Christ. Arm yourself with the same idea that you are going to suffer just like Jesus did. And then he adds this interesting phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Saying that those who suffer, those who do that, those who are willing to suffer are proving themselves to be followers, that they have broken their relationship with sin. 
And then verse 2 characterizes not only the broken relationship that happened in the past, but also the ongoing effect of that broken relationship so as to live the rest of the time, the rest of their lives that's in the body, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. These people are battle-ready. They're focused. They're armed with the mentality that they're going to suffer. They realize that, and they know, my life is now about suffering for the righteous cause of Christ. I've broken my relationship with sin in the past. I'm living now for his righteousness in the present and in the future. That's the way that we have to be ready. It's like uh, before you get to the beaches of Normandy, it's like your, your, your commanding officer saying, guys, here we go. We're about to land on the beach. It's going to be hot and heavy. Be prepared. You might get shot. You might die. And that's okay. You're doing it for the right reason. Peter's saying, you might get hurt. You're going to suffer. In fact, it doesn't even offer a might. It's a, you're going to get hurt. Prepare yourself for that. Here's the way forward. No longer living for the passions of the flesh, but for the righteousness of God in the future. Point number one, you need to surrender yourself to that idea. Surrender, be open to, be willing to suffer for the righteous cause of Christ. Be willing to say to yourself and to your Christian life, look, I know this is not going to be easy. Jesus, Jesus himself said this on multiple occasions. Take up your cross, not take up your comfy chair. Take up your cross and follow me. You will be hated all, by all for my name's sake. Jesus promised that this would be the case. And so we need to surrender ourselves, be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. Tacitus is a Roman historian who was born in 56 AD. So way early on, not too long after Christ died. He, he died, Tacitus died in 120 AD. And so he lived through some pretty significant events in Roman history. In his book, he, he wrote a, a large book called The Annals. Uh, again, he's a Roman historian. So he's, he's uh, writing down what happened in Rome's history. Well, in one particular account, he, he talks about the fire, the great fire in Rome, which happened in July 19th uh, of 64. So just a few years after he was born. So July 19th, 64 AD. The great fire in Rome lasted six days. It decimated 10 of the 12 districts. Over 70% of Rome was now in ashes. And of course, by this point in time, if you know your history, you know that the emperor in charge was Emperor Nero, the infamous Emperor Nero. Well, there were lots of theories floating around Rome at the time of wondering why this, this fire came about. And of course, everyone pointed at Nero, knowing that he was a little bit eccentric, to say the least. They said, we think Nero burned Rome so he could build up a new palace. And that not, not only that, but he also was fiddling as Rome burned. That he didn't even care what was happening. That he was just hanging out, playing his guitar, rocking some Van Halen, while everyone else was hurting. Nero, being a shrewd and even terrible emperor, knew what he was going to do to deflect the, the responsibility. Whether or not he actually did that, we don't know for sure. There's different accounts of what happened in the fire of Rome and whether or not he said it, we, we don't know um, for sure. But what we do know is this, in order to deflect attention from himself, he knew that there was one group of people that he could successfully get away with placing the responsibility upon. Do you know who that is? It was the Christians. He wrote this, uh, and by the way, this is Tacitus writing about Nero's response. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. And so Tacitus writes that it was the Christians who now, and think about this, what he writes there, that Christians who were known for their abominations, 
you might want to ask yourself, what abominations would the first century church be known for? It's not orgies and drunkenness and revelry like Peter's going to condemn in a few verses, but what kind of abominations would they be known for? Let's see if we can figure this out. Tacitus continues to write, accordingly, the arrest, an arrest was first made of all who ple- plead, pleaded guilty. So they're walking around trying to find Christians, and then they would arrest people who said, yes, I am a Christian. And upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Yeah, we're Christians, and so they're arrested, they're convicted. Now get this, not so much of the crime of firing the city, setting the city on fire, as of hatred against mankind. Again, it's left, it, it leaves you wondering what kind of activity were the Christians engaging in where they could be considered to be haters of humanity. What was going on? What abominations, what hatred of humanity was taking place? Well, to, to put it in perspective here, imagine as a U.S. citizen, what kind of things that we would do to get other Americans upset, okay? Think about what it takes to be a good citizen in the United States. If you remember, there was one guy in the news who was sponsored by Nike who made headlines because of his refusal to do something that all American citizens do, except for Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> do you know what that is? Standing for the national anthem. It's impolite at least, and it's very disrespectful at worst to sit down during the national anthem. It shows disregard for the men and women who fought for us and, and bled for our freedom. And so Colin Kaepernick, you know, he was, he was putting the news and saying he's, a, he's not a patriot, he's a hater of Americans, he doesn't like it, whatever, whatever was going on. In a similar sense, in first century Rome, the Christians were understood to be haters of humanity, committing abominations for what? It wasn't for what they did, it was for what they chose not to do. It was the fact that they chose not to pay homage to the idols and to the pagans that compromised or that comprised Romans, uh, Rome's religion. They refused to give honor to Caesar as Lord, right? They said, it's not Caesar who's Lord, it's what? If you confess Jesus as Lord, Paul would say in Romans. And so they, they earned a reputation for being haters of humanity. Because think about this, if everyone in America believed that to sacrifice to the God of the Bible was necessary for our well-being, well, what kind of jerk are you for not sacrificing to the God of the Bible? It's a similar idea here. If you're not going to sacrifice to the gods of the Roman pantheon, then you're a jerk at the very least, right? You're a bum for not helping our nation to succeed. And so, as a result, abominations, hatred of humanity, as a result, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. This should at least sober you up just a little bit to recognize that God is preparing us, His church, always to suffer the kinds of humiliation and painful persecution that these first century Christians experience. In fact, we could probably rightly guess that the people that read this letter for the first time would eventually suffer this death. And this letter, and in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 4, we're reading a letter about Peter saying, you guys are suffering a type of persecution. He's saying, but be prepared. Be prepared. There may be something worse coming, knowing this was on the horizon. This is just a few years after this book is written. This book is written about 62 to 64 AD. Nero comes on the scene in around 64 and starts his persecution then. This is happening not too long after that. Just feel the gravity of the people in the first century church who didn't know that this was coming, but knew that they were being prepared by God through the, the apostle Peter to suffer persecution. 
You need to have the mindset of surrendering to suffering, knowing that if you're going to stand with Christ, it will cost you everything. At least a commitment to give everything to Him. We should surrender suffering first and foremost because it was our Savior who set the example. That's really how Peter first tells us to think about this. He says, since Christ suffered, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. It's the idea that Jesus went before you. Jesus didn't just tell you to do something he didn't do first. Jesus is the one who's setting the stage for us. And in fact, Peter works through this all the way through his, his, his epistle. We have this verse here. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, you think the same way. Think about this. And then earlier on, we, we read this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, it says this. For to this you have been called, summoned, because Christ also suffered for you. Get this. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, was com- he committed no sin, which is, by the way, what we're being called to, to commit no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He wasn't a liar. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, even though he rightly could have. You think Danos has power snapping, Jesus could have thought, and they would have disappeared but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter's pointing to Jesus as our ultimate example in this case to say, when you suffer, when you're reviled, when you're accused as, as lying, uh, when, you're, when, you're being, when you're being threatened, don't threaten back. He's saying, do what Jesus did and entrust yourself to God. Suffer willingly. Embrace it. He goes on to say here, for Christ also suffered once for sins. This is just a few verses before our text this morning. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, Jesus might, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter saying, Jesus suffered for us once and for all, that the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, that Jesus could bring us to God and never have us separated. Jesus was put to death in the body, but he was made alive. He was resurrected in and by the Spirit. So at the very least, we need to see Jesus as our example. He's the one that is the example for us to follow. He's our commander. He's our, he, he's our lieutenant. He's whatever high position you could think of. He's the one we're following. It's as if Jesus is saying, follow me, and he's walking through the fire, and you're right behind him, ready to walk into the fire as well. Hence the name of the series. We're following Jesus into the fire. Not only that, and this should encourage you, uh, Peter gives another resounding example for why we should suffer. He says not only does it, does it follow Jesus' example, but it also validates our faith. It proves what our faith is made of. Our faith is validated by our suffering. When we love something, we are truly willing to let ourselves be, uh, to be put through the ringer for that thing that we love. And Jesus uh, calls us to express that kind of love for him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's, that second part of verse 1, ceasing from sin, that word is in the perfect tense, which means in the Greek, a perfect tense is something that has a historical past that has a continued application for the future. So it's something that's happened in the past that has a continued application for the future. It has an ongoing effect. So uh, you'll often see verses in the Bible that talk about Christ being resurrected, a historical past that has an ongoing effect for us in the future. Okay, so here's what, what Peter is saying. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The past word ceased, if we're going to think about it this way, ceased 
is something that happened in the past and it has an ongoing effect for us today. That we ceased from sin, we broke our relationship with sin, now it has the ongoing effect of us being willing to sin in the flesh, or suffer, not sin. Broken relationship with sin, new, new life in, uh, in Christ where we're willing to suffer for his sake. So what he's saying here in the second half of verse 1 is if, if you have broken your relationship with sin in the past, if you have con- confessed your sin to God, you've trusted in Jesus, your life will demonstrate that by being willing to suffer for his name's sake. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The reality is there, obviously. You've, you've broken your relationship with sin, so now you have a new life in Christ. You're living the right way. Think about this for a second. P- uh, Peter is saying you can have assurance in the fact that you are right with God when you're willing to suffer for God. When you're willing to do the hard thing, your faith is made more certain. Not to God, but to you. You're realizing and you're becoming more and more aware, God, I, I, I do belong to you. I'm willing to suffer persecution. Now, let me get real uncomfortable for a second. If you're unwilling to suffer for Christ's sake, and even small amounts, then there's obviously a problem. Some of us struggle to read our Bible every day because it's too hard, we're too busy. There's so many good reasons why we're going to say, I don't, I don't want to do that. I can't do that today. Some of us struggle to even spend time praying to God. We can't suffer just a few minutes in prayer with God. Some of us are unwilling to suffer a little bit of discomfort to love the body of Christ, to love people in this room who claim to be followers of Christ. Some of us are unwilling to suffer in going to a service when we're tired. Some of us are unwilling to suffer in small, almost meaningless ways for the sake of Christ. If we're unwilling to suffer in the small ways, uh, how are we ever going to suffer in the larger ways that Christ is going to call us to at some point in time? Suffering is a good barometer of what you really believe. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? And even the small ways, in your Bible reading, in your prayer time, and coming and being committed to your church. If so, you should be heartened. You should realize that Peter's saying, that's a good sign. That means that you've broken your relationship with sin, you've denied the flesh, and now you're suffering. That's a good sign. It means that you have a serious relationship with God that no longer is connected to your past life of sin. Our faith is validated by our suffering. We also read this earlier on, 1 Peter chapter 1. It's that the idea of being tested and that our faith is shown to be genuine. Peter's concerned that Christians realize as they suffer that suffering isn't really uh, evidence of God's displeasure. It's not necessarily one-to-one ratio here. If you're suffering, it doesn't mean God doesn't like you or that he's upset with you. It means that you're being tested and you're being tried and being refined like gold in a fire and being shown to be a genuine believer in Christ. We should welcome suffering when it has that effect for us. So there you go. Peter's concerned that we be willing to suffer because of who we follow and what it means for us. Look at the next few verses here where Peter continues on. Peter now defines a kind of suffering that he has in mind, and he says, uh, these are the things that you need to be aware of, knowing that suffering is coming and accepting that reality. He says this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, which is a way of saying the life that you used to live before you were a Christian, hey, that was plenty of sin. You don't need to sin anymore in these ways. You've, you've sinned plenty. You've, you've added enough to your account. The time that is past suffices. That's enough. No more sin necessary. And then he continues to go on. Um, 
It suffices for doing what the Gentiles and non-believers want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies. Um, he's talking about here in, in the drunken dinner parties, wild parties, unrestrained indulgence and in alcohol and immoral behavior. This doesn't just mean group sex. It means a whole lot more than this. Orgy has a much, uh, much broader application in saying the kind of immoral behavior that takes place at drunken parties, think about all that. That's what I'm throwing into the mix here. Um, living in sensuality, passions, or drunken, drunkenness and orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they are surprised. Um, the, uh, the word that, that underlies that they're astonished at the strangeness of what you're doing. They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. It says here that the unbelievers are, are just like flabbergasted. Why? <laughs> Everyone's doing this. What's your issue, Christian? Why are, you, why are you being such a problem for us? You're such a wet blanket. You're such a cold, you know, wind of air, whatever it is. You are so, fill in the blank, anti-social, counter-cultural. And Peter is saying, because you refuse to embrace what they're embracing, you will be maligned, made fun of. You'll be poked at. You'll be reviled. You'll be slandered. The, the underlying word for malign is blaspheme. It's the same word that we use when, when we're referring to someone who talks about God wrongly, blaspheming God. They're going to have that same animosity toward you and say, you're an idiot, you're a, you're a whatever, you're a, or worse than that, you're a fill in the blank. Peter's saying when you say no to what they're doing, they're going to call you out for that. He then provides some comfort, but they, the unbelievers, will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He goes on. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, the ones who died in the flesh, that though judge in the flesh the way people do, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What he's saying there is that uh, the, the pagans might have responded, well, psh, you guys are saying no to drinking and no to the orgies and no to the da-da-da-da. Well, you guys die the same way we do. So therefore, Christian, what you're believing in is not all that important. If you had some kind of magical pill that was better than ours, you would not be dying the same way the rest of us do. It's the idea of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we all die. You're dying, we're dying, we're all dying. And then the Christian response is, Peter's thought here is, yes, even though... Even though these people have died, they're judged in the flesh the way people are. The curse of sin plagues all of us. We're all going to die. They might live in the spirit the way God does. That's a reference back to 1 Peter 3, 18, just a few verses above. And again, what Peter's saying here is even though you physically will die, Christians will live again by the spirit, through the spirit. They will be resurrected and we will have life eternal with God. Good life. And so his overarching point here is to say, Christian, you got to keep things in perspective. You got to remember, even though you're suffering, there's an end game here that you may not always keep in mind. You may not realize. So the short end then, the short story, you need to sacrifice temporary pleasures. Be willing to let go of the things that the world says are good and right and noble. Be willing to suffer in ways that prove that you have an eye toward the end. Be willing to show that you're not living for this life, but the next. It's playing the long game, isn't it? There's a young man I heard about in the news that was playing the long game, and I, I loved it so much I had to share it with you. Um, the young man is named Braxton Morrill. He recently graduated high school, so he's your age. He graduated Ulysses High School in Kansas, but in four days, same day as Mason's birthday, in four days, he will also graduate Harvard. Crazy, right? 
You might think he's some kind of unique genius, but apparently he's just a really hard worker. He began taking courses through Harvard Extension School. Don't look down on that, actually. It's, I looked into it. It's the same, it's the same people, same group, same rigor. He, he graduates an extension school of Harvard um, after working since 11 years old. So he's 17 now. He started at 11. He's finishing his, uh, his undergraduate degree in six years from Harvard. And his plans now are to go to law school. Of course, he wants to be a lawyer. Like we need more lawyers, right, Brian? <laughs> just kidding. Braxton Morrill has an eye to work with the end in mind. Now, don't think that this kid didn't have a life. He was playing video games like the rest of you guys. He was doing things that high schoolers do, but he was working diligently behind the scenes with the end in mind. That's the kind of tenacity and focus that Christians need to have. We can live in this life. We can enjoy some in and out, obviously. We can enjoy canes if we have to. We can enjoy a lot of things that God gives us. (laughs) But The point is focusing on the end game ultimately, never forgetting that. That should be running like the background of our mind, like having a program that's always running on your computer. Like I never close my to-do list application. My to-do list is always there. That one never closes. And in the same way, Christians need to have the program running in their mind. The end is near. The end is near. I need to focus on that. And so that's going to help us sacrifice temporary pleasures. What that means then is we have to be willing to reject sinful fun. Let's just get real for a second. Sin is fun. Sin is awesome. Sin is enjoyable and delightful and and exciting and exhilarating for a little bit. It reminded me of a garden I heard about located in England, which I do plan on visiting someday. Um, And the garden is called the Poison Garden. As you can see on the sign there, it says, do not touch, do not smell, or eat any plant, which of course by nature of the command makes you want to touch, smell, and eat the plants. Why would you say that, right? Children must be accompanied at all times. So this legit garden actually I think is hosted in a castle, and this garden hosts a bunch of different plants and flowers that are deadly to humankind. One flower actually is so awesome because it's a plant or a flower that makes you feel really, really good before it makes you have sweat-soaked convulsions and foaming at the mouth and then death. Wow. If that's not an illustration of sin, I don't know what is. You might think that sin is harmless and ultimately uh, purposeless in your life, but just like this flower, it might feel good in the present moment. In fact, whatever this flower is, I forget the name of it, but whatever this flower is, it makes you feel wonderful for a few short moments and then leaves you with the sweats, foaming at the mouth, not attractive, and then you're dead. Rejecting sinful pleasures means realizing that we are sinful fun, rather. It means that we know that even though something is fun in the moment, we got to say no to it because we know it's going to have an adverse effect on us. And ultimately, even more than that, even more than that, we realize that sinful fun is wrong. It's a kind of fun that is bad fun. It's no fun. It's, It's not good fun. It's a kind of fun that leaves you feeling dirty and ugly at the end of it. That's what Peter says we need to do. So the time that for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Your history in pornography or, or casual dating or whatever else that you had going on, that's the past. This is today. Live for the present and the future glory, Christian. That's what he's saying here. Not only that, sacrificing temporary pleasures will also mean that you're losing people's approval. If you like people's approval, Christianity is not for you because you're going to lose it so quickly. I heard from one of you this week that they posted something on their Insta and they, got, they lost like 30 followers because of the post. What was the post? Okay, you might be asking that. The post was about abortion. 
They weren't pro-abortion, in case you were wondering. And so naturally, 30 followers later, they're like, oh, that's lame. It's a bummer that people are going to unfollow me because I talk about saving babies' lives. When it comes down to it, like, I don't think any of us are going to cry too long for losing 30 followers, right? We're not going to be, you know, losing sleep over that. But there, there is a sense in which we need to look at that and realize that's just a taste of what's coming. If, if you wish to be faithful to Jesus, losing 30, follow, 30 followers is the least of your concerns. The least of your concerns. Peter says it this way. He says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They will say nasty things about you. They will spread rumors about you. And in fact, that's what happened in the first century church. Um, when, when Christians would gather together for love feasts, uh, that when they would celebrate communion and have church, they were accused of having sexual morality among themselves. And so they, they got this reputation for being you know, immoral in that way, although that was never the case. Um, they were called out for, for certain things. The same thing is going to happen to you. You'll be accused of being a goody two-shoes, or I don't know what the, the new lingo is for goody two-shoes, but you'll be accused for being uh, the upright moral citizen who's make, making everyone else feel uncomfortable. You'll be accused of being a hater of humanity. In fact, isn't that very similar to what we're called today? Bigots and moral monsters. We're being called haters because of what we uphold as being the biblical truth that God commands of us. You'll be called a hater. You'll be maligned. You will lose people's respect. People perhaps that you might respect ultimately will lose respect for you. What will that do to you? Some of the most brilliant minds in our society today, I mean, I know Stephen Hawking died recently. Some of the most brilliant minds that people would say, that man, Tony, uh, DeGrasse Tyson. Uh, Tony? Neil, thank you. Who might think of Tony? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, people like that look at us, and at the very least, they pity us. But at the very worst, they malign us. These guys are such morons. How can they be so idiotic? It's absurd that they would think that God created the heavens and the earth in six, 24, uh, six uh, literal 24-hour days. And the fact that they're so backward thinking about the progressive nature of relationships I mean, isn't it so foolish to think that we're even tied down to one man and one wife? Evolution proves to us that the more we can spread our seed, the better off our, our people will be, right? <laughs> How can Christians uphold this old, stodgy religion when we're clearly making progress? Aren't we called progressives after all? And yet here these conservatives are ruining our nation, ruining our country. They need to be fined. They need to lose their tax-exempt status. They need to lose their buildings. They're taking up valuable space in a business park that could be bringing in so much more money. They will malign you, Peter says. You will lose people's approval. And then he switches gears and he says this, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter gets sober real quick and he says, remember what the end is. Remember what the end is. It's not just rejecting sinful fun. It's not just losing people's approval. It's remembering the end game. Hat tip to Wednesday night. Remember the end game. God will resurrect and judge each of us. We only need to recall how the story ends. If you could travel in your time machine back to 1980 on December 12th, and I gave you money, you might do well to invest your stock in Apple. In December of 1980, they went public. They had their IPO, and it was like 10 bucks a share, I think. It was uh, something about that. Yeah. So you could, you could invest... Yeah. Uh, 10 shares, and you'd spend $220, 1980. Today, 
your $200, your $220 would be worth $124,000, which is an increase in ROI, if you're interested in this, of 56,000%. You might say, well, man, sacrificing $220, that's going to hurt, man. I'm not going to have coffee. I can't have uh, Chick-fil-A. I don't want to have Canes. I can't have In-N-Out. I can't have all the things that I want if I invest that $220. But I could say to you, but there's $124,000 waiting for you. might take a few years to get there, but there's $124,000 at, the at the end of that rainbow. How foolish it would be to say, well, I'd rather keep my 220 Thank you very much. I'm going to Chick-fil-A today. No, I'm not because it's Sunday. I'm going to go Monday. Silly. Remember the end game, Peter says. Remember the last call. It's not here. It's there. While they revile you today, they will stand before God the other day, the next day. Peter closes off, and it gets interesting here because he starts saying things that don't make sense to me, at least in a human form. He says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be sober-minded, excuse me, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, first and foremost, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use that gift to serve one another as good stewards, managers of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, for the very purpose of, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Jesus belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Put simply here, you need to be striving for God's eternal glory, not focused on this life, but again, the next life, saying, my life is about Christ. It's his honor and his glory that I'm going for. You don't need to fear being hurt, Christian. You don't need to fear being reviled. You don't need to fear losing followers on your Insta. In fact, one, one, one pastor once said, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. How foolish it would be for us to succeed in being the most popular, the, 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 the highest academician that we could possibly be, the greatest athlete ever to gain everything, as Jesus says, and lose our soul, to forget the fact that we're living for eternity and not living for this life. The Christian life is ultimately living about the fame of God. How do we strive then, Peter? What's that look like? Peter says you need to be spiritually battle-ready. He says, sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Sober-minded and self-controlled. Think about that. He's saying that there's a relationship between good prayers that are focused on the end and being self-controlled and sober-minded. He said, if you're, if you're thinking about the end, your prayers are going to be better. If you're thinking about the end, you're going to be self-controlled and sober-minded, and your prayers will have a much greater effect because you'll be praying about the right things. You're not going to be praying about Sparky, your cat. Hopefully, you'll never pray for your cat. But you're not going to be praying about things that are, that are purposeless or ultimately meaningless. Sorry about your cat. And I care. But my purpose is that we're caring about the ultimate things of God. If you, if you are looking through the lens of the end time, Peter's saying you're going to be spiritually battle-ready. You're always going to be aware that we're on a battleground, not a playground. He says you can also strive by, above all, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is concerned that the church look beautiful to the watching world. Even if they accuse us and malign us, he's saying there shouldn't be real strife and difficulty in the church going on. In fact, that word for earnestly, that word for earnestly means to stretch or strain your muscles Think about the kind of burn that you feel when you're running as hard as you can. Your chest is burning. Your, your legs might be jiggly and, and you know, you know, they're feeling like they're going to collapse. Peter's saying that's the kind of, uh, that's the characteristic of that your love should have, the way that you're loving other people. Does your love look like that? 
Is it stretched? Is it strained? Really what this means, young person, is that our love should hurt a lot. Our love covers a multitude of sins. We're willing to forgive each other when we sin against each other, when we say stupid things to one another. How many of you guys have put your foot in your mouth ever? Yeah, join the club. I made too, far too many racist jokes in my life, especially in high school, and I, I've, I've, I've upset some people, people I thought I was cool with, and, you know, there was, there was difficulty there that I had to apologize for, rightly so. But we all say and do things that we're unintentionally being foolish and sinful. And Peter's saying, in the church, let it be that you're willing to overlook something like that. Yeah, you hurt me, but I'm just going to overlook that. As long as it's not like a serious ridiculous. And he says, there's a lot of stuff you can just overlook and be doing the right thing. It also means being adipat in our serving. Adipat is, our, is a church term that we use. It means anything, any place, anytime. It's the mentality that characterizes the Christian faith. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use that gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Hospitality would have referred to hosting Christians who are traveling or perhaps fleeing persecution in another area. He's saying, Christians, be willing to welcome people into your house. And has anyone ever had someone stay at their house? It's like, oh, they live differently. They, they go to bed at a different time. They wake up at a different time. Uh, they're obviously like, they're not part of the family. They just, they kind of stick out like a sore thumb. They put places, or they put things in the wrong places or they move stuff. I'm like, why would you put that there? That doesn't make sense. Or they'll put the toilet paper on the, the wrong way. I mean, they just do all sorts of things. Like, hey, this is frustrating, right? Peter's saying, I realize that when you're, you're hosting people, when you're showing hospitality, you're giving free food, you're giving boarding room to these people, and it can be frustrating and it could cause you to grumble. He's saying, don't do that. Fight that desire and instead be willing to serve them with gladness. Host them with gladness, realizing that they're going to make a mess of your life and that's okay because you're not living for this life, you're living for the next. And then he says, I want you to serve one another. I want you to serve each other with, as good stewards of God's varied grace. A steward is a manager. You have been given a gift by God. If you're a Christian, you've been given a gift by God. And here's the thing, you are a manager of that gift and I, I therefore will go on to say, you are responsible to use that gift in God's church for God's people. That's what Peter's saying here. Use your gift as good stewards of God's varied grace. What gift have you been given that you're not currently applying? God has given that to you for the very purpose of serving your church, building up the church so that she's strong and healthy and able to endure the waves of difficulty and the persecution that's coming her way. Lastly, and most importantly, you can strive to live for God's glory and His honor and splendor by being focused on that day in and day out. Peter says that you're to do this in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Jesus belong the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Kind of focus that we ought to have as a church through the midst of persecution is focusing on God's glory. If, if God's glory means that I have to hurt a little bit, then so be it, God. If you have to suffer the loss of friends or the loss of scholarships or the loss of jobs or the loss of whatever it might be, isn't Jesus worth that? Isn't his glory worth your present temporary suffering? Isn't Christ worth it to you? the one who lived and died on the cross in your place. Have you heard the gospel lately? Do you realize what Jesus has done for you on your behalf? You who are too sinful to stand in his presence, 
You were made able to be brought near to God by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is a terrible place to call you to repentance and faith because I'm basically telling you to sign up to hurt. But isn't it better to sign up and hurt in this life than to suffer eternal hurt in the next life? forever and ever facing God's righteous indignation. Young person, today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. Don't put it off any longer. You don't know any more than what you're being given right now. You don't know if the next breath you have is your last breath. You don't realize how fragile your life is. This moment you live, the next moment you may be dead. And God who judges the living and the dead, you will stand before and give an account. And it won't be a fish-shaking account of, why didn't you do it this way? Why weren't you more fair to me? Why didn't you make my parents such and such? God's not going to endorse or entertain that. You will have nothing to say to him except, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. When you stand before the glory of God, your answer will not be, oh God, I have so many issues with you. It's going to be, God, you're the Lord and I am not. I'm sorry. I deserve everything that I'm about to receive. But the thing is, you don't have to go through that. You can be right with God today. And you can sign up to suffer in the army of the Lord by putting your trust in Jesus, turning from sin and following after him. And here's the beautiful gift. You are guaranteed salvation that will never be ripped away from you, no matter how much they may try to hurt you, no matter how much your body is burned, no matter how much your soul is pained by the loss of friendships or money or power or possessions, God promises that you will have him. You'll be reconciled with your creator and never be separated. Romans chapter 8 says that the height, nor depth, nor powers or principalities, nothing in all creation will be able to ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can be right with that creator today, right now. It's simply a matter of turning and trusting, turning from sin, trusting in his death on the cross to make you right with God here and now. And then you can suffer with the rest of us. And you could suffer with a family that will love you and a God who will never abandon you. Today is a day of salvation, young person. Will you respond to his call? Praying that you guys understand that the gospel is a great gift for the Christian. But that gift leads us into the fires of suffering and difficulty. But by God's grace, through the means of holy communion within the church, and I don't mean the Catholic church, I mean the church of God, of Jesus Christ, the, this church, we can be right with God, we can stand with him, and we can face the fiercest opposition because we have a hope that isn't for this, for this life, but ultimately for the next. Let's pray.